Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the privilege we have to meet together as men to fellowship around your word. And we thank you for the book of Galatians. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his heart and his passion for the gospel. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. Help us to just see how the gospel applies, not just to unbelievers, but to believers as well. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, you know, if Bob Carl's nickname is the professor, I think my nickname should be the practitioner. Because when I approach the scriptures, I'm always, I always want to know the practical stuff. I want to, I ask myself the question, so what? Or what do you, what do you want me to get out of this? And so this morning, a lot of what I'm going to share is really that practical stuff. How does the book of Galatians apply to us today? But I will give some background information. Um, here's a map of uh, Galatia. You see it up there in the top. Galatia was a Roman province in the Central Asia Minor. Today it's in Turkey. Paul traveled there on each of his three missionary journeys where he spread the good news of the gospel. This map shows his first missionary journey. The Galatians received Paul and the gospel warmly, at least at first, but later some people that Paul refers to as agitators, came and challenged Paul's leadership as well as his gospel message. In the early church, those who taught a combination of God's grace and human effort were called Judaizers. The word Judaizer comes from the Greek verb, which means to live according to Jewish customs. The word actually appears in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14 where Paul describes how he confronted Peter for forcing Gentiles to Judaize. So Paul wrote to answer the threat to his status as an apostle and to reaffirm his core message that faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved, and it's also the key to our spiritual growth. There's an urgency in Paul's letter. The letter was to be circulated to all the churches he planted in Galatia that were being quickly led astray. You can outline the book like this. Chapters 1 and 2, the defense of the true gospel. These are mostly Paul's personal words, and you see his, his passion. You might even say his anger. <laughs> chapters 3 and 4, freedom from legalism. Focus on doctrinal teaching, and then chapters 5 and 6, freedom to love and serve, an emphasis on practical exhortations. The tone of Paul's letter is vigorous, very direct, and brief. And you can tell that Paul is upset. He's very upset. The theme is that justification comes by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. The key verse is Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In that one verse, about three different times, he brings that point out that you are not justified by the works of the law. So here's a little timeline. Paul plants the churches of Galatia during his first missionary journey, which you can read in Acts chapters 13 and 14. The false teachers then enter the Galatian churches sometime after Paul's departure. And then Paul writes the letter of Galatians around 48 or 49 AD, prompted by the news of this false teaching. What are the two key questions that Paul answers for us in the book of Galatians? This is going to be the focus of our discussion this morning. And by the way, I'm hoping to leave a lot of time at the end for some real good discussion, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, because I'm guessing you're going to have, there's going to be a lot of different insights and, and uh, maybe questions that you have. The two questions I, that I see in the book of Galatians are this. First, is the good news of Jesus or the gospel enough to justify us before God? The second question is, how do we actually grow in our faith and become more like Christ? So let's dive into chapter one. Could I have a volunteer, maybe Big Dan, read chapter one, verses one to 12. Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now I'm trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by the revelation from Jesus Christ. Thanks, Big Dan. So what we see in this chapter, chapter one, we see the gospel is mentioned, 50, well, in chapters one and two, the gospel, the word gospel is mentioned 15 times. The word law is mentioned in Galatians 29 times, and the word spirit is mentioned 10 times. And you could actually argue the word gospel is mentioned much more than, than 15 times because the way the synonyms that Paul uses for the word for gospel in the book. But to really understand the gospel, you need to understand these four key characteristics of the life-changing gospel. The first one is the power of the gospel that we see in, in, in chapter one. 
The gospel is not Paul's invention. It's a message of Jesus Christ. That's what one of the things he says in chapter one. And in one eleven, he says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me was not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So God's words, God's word aren't like our words. God's words are powerful and can change reality. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, another book that Paul wrote, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel changes lives. In fact, I'm guessing the gospel has changed your life. And we all know that. If you've been born again, you understand the power of the gospel. And so Paul makes that very clear. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic we see is the urgency of the gospel. The gospel tells the big story that the world is falling apart and people are condemned and trapped by lies. Jesus Christ's mission is like a daring rescue mission. The people need to be delivered from this present evil age. We live in the midst of this cosmic spiritual battle for the souls of countless men and women. And Paul is deeply concerned that his readers understand the one true gospel because it's only through the gospel that people can be delivered from evil. So Paul expresses an urgency in correcting the error and getting the gospel right. So we see the power of the gospel, the urgency of the gospel. Third, we, the third characteristic is the intimacy of the gospel. When you turn away from the gospel, you're actually turning away from God <laughs> because the gospel helps us to build a personal relationship with God. To lose the gospel is to lose him. The gospel shows us God's grace through what Jesus sacrificed, teaching us that God's love isn't based on what we do but who we are. This is what makes us want to follow God's rules because we love him, not because we want something. The gospel's not a religious creed. The gospel is a person, Jesus, right? So we see the intimacy of the gospel. And then fourth, we see the order of the gospel. The gospel is a story with a sp specific structure and and truth. If you mess up the order, you can get it wrong. Like the false teachers in Galatians, they, they messed up the order of the gospel. That's why you see this word distort. The Greek word translated distort is also translated pervert, or it actually means to reverse or to turn inside out. This is what the Judaizers were doing with the gospel. We see it in Acts chapter 15, verse 1 where it said, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is one of the things that really upset Paul. Paul says they reversed the gospel. They got the order wrong. So what do I mean by that? Well, Paul taught this. Number one, believe in Jesus Christ. Number two, you will be saved. Number three, as a result, you will obey the law. The Judaizers taught, number one, believe in Jesus Christ. 
Number two, obey God's law. Number three, then you will be saved. They got the order wrong, and it makes all the difference. You see, Paul is telling us the order matters. And, you know, you've probably all heard this. The gospel is Jesus plus what? Nothing. Jesus plus nothing. What do you need? What do you need? You, you need, the only thing you come to Christ with is you need, you need him. You need, you know, you, you need need. So let's continue in chapter two. Let's, let's, let's look at chapter two. Actually, before we do that, let me, let me bring up, uh, the book of Galatians had a huge impact on Martin Luther. So much so that he refers to the book of Galatians as his second wife. He actually does that. He wrote a whole, he wrote a whole commentary on the book of Galatians. And in the introduction, he, he calls Galatians his wife. He loved the book of Galatians because it changed him. But Martin Luther also helps us understand what a true believer is because he came up with this phrase, simul justus ec peccator, or justified sinners. Justified sinners, that we are simultaneously justified and a sinner at the same time. That's what a Christian is. God sees us right now as perfect, just as he sees his son. We call this imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness. And we get this from one of the key verses is 1 Corinthians 5.21. Again, words of Paul, where he said that God made him, or Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And then we even see it in Colossians, Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alien, alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now contrast this with other religions. Other religions will say, that I am either a moral success or a moral failure. But Christianity says, I am completely redeemed. I'm a completely redeemed, justified failure. <laughs> I am a, you know, so what is a true believer? We are an honored failure. We are a, a righteous sinner. We are a justified sinner. That's how the Bible describes us. Paul later wrote in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. Th that truth changed this guy's life and changed countless lives and should change your, uh, your life and my life. By the way, just um, as I was looking at different quotes from Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians, there were some other quotes that, kind of stood out to me. I'm, I'm just going to share some of them. I, I thought they were pretty interesting. He said, uh, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace, by grace alone, is the hardest thing. To be convinced in your heart, it's the hardest thing. Then he said, we are nothing with all our gifts, be they ever so great, except God assist us. 
And he said, the gospel is true because it deprives men of all glory, wisdom, and righteousness and turns over all honor to the creator alone. It is safer to attribute too much glory unto God than unto man. I like that quote. And then he said, the article of justification is fragile, not in itself, of course, but in us. I know how quickly a person can forfeit the joy of the gospel. With that, let's continue and read chapter 2. Um, could I have a volunteer read chapter 2, verses 1 to 10? Mark? Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that somehow I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Yet it was a concern because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy on our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. But we did not yield in subjection to them, even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of considerable repute, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. Well, those who were of repute contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who was at work for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised was at work for me, also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. The point of that is Paul is sharing his personal experience, and I love in verse 3, he says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Continue reading, Mark, if you don't mind, chapter 2, 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of some men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Thanks, Mark. Here we see two of the greatest Christians fighting each other. Isn't that crazy? I mean, Paul confronts Peter, two of the greatest Christians in all of history, fighting. This is an important passage to think about. Paul says in 2.14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? What does it mean to not act in line with the gospel? Well, not acting in line means that you can fall offline. You can fall offline on one side to the other. And what's interesting is Tertullian, who was a prolific early Christian author from Carthage in the Roman province of Africa, he lived around 160 to 240 AD. That was his lifespan. 
he, um, years later, uh, made this comment. He said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification is crucified between two opposite errors. What is he talking about? So what are the, what are the two thieves of the gospel? Well, I find this, this diagram incredibly helpful. What Tertullian meant is that there are basically two false ways of thinking, each which steals the power and distinctiveness of the gospel from us by pulling us, pulling the gospel, pulling us offline with the gospel to one side or the other. These two errors are very powerful because they represent the natural tendency of the human heart and mind. The default setting of the human heart is bent towards self-justification. And so I just love this. I love this diagram because when you come to Christ, uh, you realize there's basically three ways you can live your life. You can follow the rules, you can follow your heart, or you can follow Jesus. But what happens as Christians often is we begin following Jesus, but then we start drifting. We start drifting to one side or the other. And you can see the Judaizers were like on the follow the rules. And if we do that, we fall into these traps of legalism or moralism. So these thieves can be called moralism or legalism on the one side or hedonism or relativism on the other side. Another way to put it is that the gospel opposes both religion and irreligion. On the one hand, moralism and religion stresses truth without grace, for it says that we must obey truth in order to be saved. On the other hand, the relativists or irreligion stresses grace without truth, for they say we're all accepted by God, and if there is a God, he, he must love everybody, and he's going to let everybody into heaven. But truth without grace is not really truth, and grace without, tr without truth is not really grace. That reminds me, I, I, was, I had the privilege to be friends with Jerry Bridges, and uh, I've heard him say this, love without truth deceives, but truth without love destroys. And what's interesting is we need to remember that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. And in, if you read the Gospels, you can see how he uses, you know, he, when he confronts the Pharisees, he just gives them truth. Like, he calls them a brood of vipers at one point. When he confronts a sin, sinful woman, he's much more gentle and he gives her grace. He knows how to use truth and grace in a way to bring people to himself. Let's talk about the one thief, legalism, moralism, where the Judaizers this is the view that you're acceptable to God, the world, and others through your attainments. The problem with this view is that it really leads either towards self-hatred because you can never live up to the standards. <laughs> you can never live up. Have you ever tried to live up to your own standards? And, you're, you know, you know we're, we're at a perfect time for this, New Year's resolutions, right? I forget what the statistics are, but the statistics are people that make New Year's resolutions, so very few people follow through with them because we can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. Or it leads to self-inflation because if you convince yourself that you are living up to your standards, then you become full of pride. And neither of those have any place in God's kingdom. 
So that's the problem with the legalism, Dave. Let's talk about the other side for a second. Relativists or hedonists are usually irreligious. They believe that everyone needs to determine what is right and wrong for them. They believe that if there is a God, he's probably an, a loving, impersonal force. They don't think of themselves as sinners. If God accepts us, it's because he's so welcoming or because we're not that bad. So some people think, well, now as Christians, Christians can fall into license as well because they'll say, well, Christ died for my sins, past, present, and future. So heck, I might as well live however I want. Eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm free to commit any sin because they're all covered. Well, obviously, that's not right. I ran into a group at Kent State. You know, I've been in college ministry for most of my life, and there was this group at Kent State that fell into this trap of license because I called them like the swearing Christians because they they loved to just curse. And I mean, I mean it, was, it was the oddest thing for me personally because I can think of so many passages that talk, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But these guys, and, and they just, it's like they went that way. And they, they were like, hey, you know, where's the Bible say you can't swear, or you can't say this word? It, I found it very offensive, actually. So that's the license thief. What do these two thieves have in common? They're both ways to avoid Jesus as Savior and to keep control of our lives. That is the problem because the default setting of our hearts is so much. We want control. We want self-justification and control. And they both are based on a distorted views of the real God. And they both deny our sin. And so we lose the power, the joy and power of grace. All right. So let's talk about this. What is the relationship with, of the law with the gospel? In chapters 2 and 3, Paul answers this question. So let's continue on in chapter 2. Could I have a volunteer read this passage? Chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. Okay, thanks, Rex. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for it is righteousness comes through the law. Then Christ died needlessly. Amen. I love that. You're getting emotional there. Uh, and, you know, I, I've heard Jim Resky read this verse, quote this verse to me, and he said, who loved me? Who loved me? I mean, it, it's so powerful, such a powerful verse. But what I want you to notice is Paul's now writing about living the Christian life. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say this. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ 
lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by relying on the law. That's, he didn't say that. He didn't say the life I now live, I, I live by. And, you know, as a new believer, when I was just a babe in Christ, I used to think that all the people in the Old Testament were saved by, by keeping the law. And all the people in the New Testament were saved by faith in Jesus. But the law never saved anybody. The law never saved anyone. I had a little bit of an aha moment this week as I was uh, preparing for this and thinking about this. If the law could save some people, why would you have the sacrificial system? Why would you have the temple? Because in the, why would you have to sacrifice all those animals? And why would you have the Holy of Holies where the, some guy goes in there once a year and he has to have bells on his thing just in case he does something inappropriate and they have to pull him out? I mean, so the, the law the law never saved anyone. I love J.B. Phillips' translation of chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. I want to read it to you. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, who saw Jesus Christ the crucified so plainly, who has been casting a spell over you? I will ask you a simple question. Did you receive the Spirit of God by trying to keep the law? or by believing the message of the gospel. Surely you can't be so idiotic as to think that a man begins his spiritual life in the spirit and then completes it by reverting to outward observances. So, if we're not to rely on the law for our spiritual growth, what does spiritual growth look like? In other words, this leads us to the second main question that I want to address is how does the gospel change us as believers? Or you could say, what is gospel-driven sanctification? Well, both Jim Resky and I have shared this, this diagram with you guys before because we both believe it's so important to understand. We believe it's a great visual for what our Christian life should look like. Jim will probably go into more detail in, than this even next week as he finishes up Galatians. But I just want to point out that the way we grow in the Christian faith is the same way we came to faith. We came to faith through Jesus, and the way we grow is Jesus becomes more and more important to us. In other words, like Tim Keller says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. And then you move on to like deeper truth. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The Christian life is a process of renewing every dimension of our life according to the gospel. So the main problem that we have as Christians in our Christian life is that we've not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. Most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. That's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And what I love about this is that I need Jesus just as desperately as my non-Christian neighbor. And so it's not like me up on a pedestal looking down on the non-Christians like, oh, you guys, you need to come up here. No, I'm down there with them. I need Jesus just as much. 
not not for my salvation. My salvation is secure, but my sanctification, my sanctification. Yeah. What does it mean when it says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling? What does that mean to you? To work out your salvation in fear and trembling. I'm sure it uh, probably means a lot to to different guys. Looks sounds like Louis wants to address it. To me, when I when I hear the word fear, obviously you think of being afraid, but the bi the biblical word fear is means to be in awe. And so what I think is when I first came to Christ, Jesus was pretty, I was blown away that God loved me and, and that, he, that he would save me. But my knowledge of the gospel is like this. I've grown in awe of the gospel. To me, that's what working out your, your salvation and fear and trembling is growing more and more in awe of, of the gospel. Now, what did Christ do for me? The cross, let's say the cross is like bigger than this whole screen. What he actually did for me I will spend my whole life hopefully growing in my appreciation of the gospel, but I will never get to a full understanding of what he accomplished for me on the cross. Amen? We, we spend our whole lives, and so, so I, need, I need to appreciate the cross more. I'm just an infant. <laughs> I mean, I've been a Christian 30 years, but I'm just a babe. I'm just a babe in Christ. Why do I have to think I'm so spiritually mature? Because I'm telling you, what, what Jesus actually did is probably 100 times bigger than the screen. Go ahead, Joe. Hey, Greg. You know, the way I like to think about this, too, it's similar to the cross growing in our lives. But I, I draw a barometer. And before we know Christ, that, that, that rectangle or that whatever the structure is, it is 100% ourselves. And the day we become a Christian, why maybe we got... 20% Christ and 80% ourselves. And then it moves up to 40 and 60 over time, 80 and pretty soon, you know, Christ is the most important thing in our lives. And, and that is what you're showing at the cross. And that's what, what you, uh, what uh, I think about when I draw the barometer, but I, I thought as we read Galatians two twenty that you would be excited as a navigator because the very two verses I ever memorized or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, mm -hmm. Amen. and then Galatians 2, 20. Yep. Any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Yep. And then I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, not him. And so we go on to say that there were, we're new, we're reborn. There's a difference, there's a change. And those two verses, to me, are hallmarks of, of the Navigator series. Amen. And it's all about Christ being the center, the center of our lives. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And see, when, I thought he loved me back here, but as I grow, I realize how much he loved me. And it, and, it, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, one of the observations I made is why did God in the Old Testament, why do we have the law and the temple? And I came up with this, I, I, I just kind of had this thing of like, well, the temple really shows us God's holiness, you know, like I was talking about the holy of holies and how, and, and the law really shows us the, our sinfulness because we can never keep it. The problem is the, the Jews made it so you can keep it, you know, so they, even to this day, you go, 
you go to Israel on, on a Sunday or a, or a Saturday, I'm sorry, on a Sabbath, and you live in a 10-story hotel, you can't push the, the buttons to, the, to get to your floor if you live on the eighth floor. So they're all pushed for you. So you don't. Have, so that way you you can say I didn't do any work, I didn't do any. I didn't push any buttons. I didn't. But so, but the original law was to show us the depth of our sinfulness, and our need. And and really, what's so cool about the gospel is the gospel is the only solution. <laughs> it's the only the ultimate solution for us, because God is in, way more holy than we think He is, and we are way more sinful than we think we are. <laughs> And so the gospel is the only thing that, that, that it's the only solution to all of our problems. So I just want to, uh, I'm going to leave some time for uh, more discussion and questions, but on your handout, I have some questions for reflection. And I, I really want to encourage you to, to reflect on some of these questions. Like, have I added anything to the gospel regarding my salvation? Is there anything that I'm adding to the gospel regarding my salvation? Or am I trusting in Jesus plus nothing? Am I adding anything to the gospel regarding my sanctification? Am I trusting in Jesus plus nothing or Jesus plus something else? Which gospel thief do I drift towards? Is gratitude towards Christ the engine of the Christian life? And see that back to that, um, that diagram and is my understanding of the cross shrinking or growing? I think the, the engine of the Christian life is gratitude. It's gratitude because Jesus paid it all. He did everything for it. And, and you can never, and you should be growing in your gratitude. So with that, I think I'm going to stop there for today. Jim will pick up on the second half of Galatians next week. But with that, we can have a time of like more discussion and questions. Or you can share your, your thoughts. Yeah, Larry. I was just going to say that uh, when he asked about working out your salvation and fear and trembling, I think of Romans. Where in Romans 6, you come to Romans 7, and he talks about his struggle with sin. And then you have the great passage in Romans 8. As you come closer, when I, I don't remember who told me this, but as you come closer to the light, things look darker. I start seeing more darkness in myself of things that I wouldn't have when I first became a Christian. And so you suddenly have something new to struggle with. And I look at it in chapter 7, he talks about a marriage relationship. I think of my relationship with my wife. I mean, you go from ecstasy early on, and all of a sudden you get to know each other, you start seeing some of the flaws. You get into a deeper relationship, a deeper level, you start seeing some of the flaws in the relationship and stuff like that. And I think that's why you work it out. But I still believe there is fear, fear of the Lord. Asked, when I want to sin, there's a fear of the Lord and thinking, you know, judgment for disappointing him. Fear is there along with reverence. And I know everybody says, no, fear doesn't mean, it means reverence. There's a couple passages where it says fear and reverence. I think it's in Psalms. I, can't, I don't have it right here. But I believe we need to have a, a, a righteous fear of God because it's amazing who he is. And when yeah. it humbles you. And Oh, I think, I think if God showed up right now, we'd all be on our faces. If LeBron James walks in here, we would be, we'd feel a sense of awe. Maybe, maybe some of us might, maybe not, maybe some of you wouldn't, but no. some, some might feel a little bit, there, there's human, there's, 
there's human beings you might feel as you know okay lebron james sorry i you know there are men that could walk in this room and we would feel a sense of awe but god walks in this room we're on our faces well i and think so i think i think i think of daniel daniel to me is a man of god in ways that i would aspire to be like and what happens when he came face to face he was on his face mm. he had fear shaking and and so i i don't know I come from a Catholic, the Catholic Church, where you walk into the church, and there's something about just the church. It, to me, God was there, and I would be humbled. And I think we need to have that when we come to Him. We sometimes people are too flippant. Like you, I had somebody who was in my office who claimed to be a Christian, and he was spouting, swearing. And I was looking at my assistant. I said, I said to him, I said, you know what? I don't appreciate what you're saying. I said, you not even need to stop that. And he went back, like, I said, hey, I'm sorry. I just don't appreciate it. I don't, if someone was saying something to my wife about my wife, I wouldn't let him get away with it. So when they use the Lord's name in vain, it just, it irritates me. So I'm, maybe that might be considered to be legal, but I think it changes your heart. And because of love, you don't want someone to, to do that. So, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for your thoughts. Yeah, Ben. Yes. Uh. The uh, covenant of promise actually precedes the law. It goes all the way back to Abrahamic yep. covenant, where he moved on faith only. That's right. That Abraham covenant in Genesis 15 is very important because when God made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham knew what God was doing. So he set up the he set up these things where he put split animals in half. And the way a covenant usually worked is both parties would walk between those animals that were torn in half saying, if I break this covenant, this is what will happen, you know, to, to you. The amazing thing about Genesis 15 is God walked through the, God made the covenant, but he never asked Abraham to do it. So, and, and essentially it's foreshadowing what, what he was ultimately going to do through the cross, that he was going to have his son ripped to pieces on our behalf because we broke the covenant. Yeah, Lou. Uh, great, great comments by Dr. Larry and Ben. I, I, I agree with Dr. Larry, uh, having been raised Catholic also, about the awesomeness of God when you would go in and you'd have to genuflect and certain things, I mean, certain traditions and so on show the awesomeness of God and the reverence for God. So I, I would agree with Dr. Larry. And Ben, I think, just hit it right on the, nailed it. Because if you look at the scriptures, it says uh, in, in chapter 3, I think it's so important, know then that is those of the faith who are sons of Abraham in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all nations be blessed. And then at the end of chapter three, it talks about there's no Jews, no Greeks, no males, no females are all one in Christ. So, you know, the law came in as a schoolmaster, as it says in chapter three, but we're under the Abrahamic covenant. That's why Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And, and the Hebrews is so important to understand all that. So we as Gentiles are not second-class citizens. You know, we are accepted by God. God with, with Abraham he made a way for Gentiles from the very beginning. And Ben is so right. The law came for, for and, and, you know, if you talk to Jewish people, they want to talk to you about Moses. You know, they don't want to talk to you about Abraham and how we're members of Abraham. That's what I faced a lot of times. They want to talk about the law. And, the, and like you said, Greg, that's the default position. 
So, you know, we should be so thankful. And I, and I think Tom hit it on the head too. You know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, your attitude, you are saved, you are justified, right? You're working out your sanctification and the cross is becoming larger in your life. It's, it's just so good. I mean, when you think about it, 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 there's so many blessings there that, you know, intellectually, if, if, if people look at it intellectually, everything is there for you. If you look at it emotionally, some people are more emotionally uh, tied, not necessarily men, but some people, right? There's a lot of emotional growth there. There's, you know, there's intelligence, there's emotional quotient. Everything is there in the gospel. Every, every facet of our lives is there. Mm. Thanks, Lou. I appreciate you sharing that. Ray. It's interesting. Before you become a Christian, you think of Christianity as following rules. Galatians tells you the opposite. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think one of the challenges for us as we try to witness to people is we have to, you know, I said there's three ways to live. Follow the rules, follow Jesus, or follow your heart. You have to put yourself in the mind of an, an unbeliever. They think there's two ways to live. <laughs> Basically, you you follow your heart or you follow the rules. And so when when they look at us, they see us as religious. They see us over here. And part of our job as evangelists is to explain that, no, we're not over here. We are, we are doing, you know, Jesus is something totally different. And I find it, that's one of my biggest struggles in evangelism. And that's why I actually use this diagram with, with people when I'm sharing the gospel with them. I explain, no, I'm, I am not following the rules. I'm not just a religious good guy. I'm not a moralist, you know, or a legalist, but that's how they see us. I mean, your neighbors, oh, he's a religious guy. He goes to church. So our job is to help them see, no, we have something different. Yeah. We still have a we still have a few more minutes. Yeah. You know, and when I was in grade school, we had a nun who said, you know, when you sin, it's like you're driving the nail into Christ's hands. Mm. And that's always stuck with me. And I think as Christians, though, we can get in a attitude that, you know, I did this wrong, but you know, I'm saved. And I think that's a dangerous, dangerous position to be in. It's just to nonchalantly think it's okay. And and I hear it from people. I mean, yeah, they don't feel about repentance. Very good. I think for for us as Christians, we need to think of sin as not just breaking God's law, but breaking His heart. And that's why we don't want it. We don't want to sin. Why? By the way, I want to make this very clear. And it's clear in Galatians, we still want to obey the law. We still want to follow the law. What we don't want to do is rely on the law. Relying on the law is trusting it. Like we want to obey it. And we will with Jesus's help with the Holy. And by the way, the Holy Spirit's mentioned 10 times. The Holy Spirit is key for us to live the Christian life. It's Christ, Christ lives in me. So when I succeed in, in obeying the law, it's, it's not, I don't get any credit for that. That's, that's the Holy Spirit working in me. That's my changed life. You know, that's, that's him. Ken. I just going to reflect back to what Larry was saying. I said, I came uh, my, from, was around cops a lot. My dad was a cop. And I said, our, the second language in our house, I think was swearing. And I'd say, as these men came to know Christ, 
you could see in their heart how they were convicted and would catch themselves. I told the one guy, I said, if you couldn't swear, you'd be a deaf mute. And uh, <laughs> so, but, but when you, it was amazing how God transformed their hearts, they would catch themselves. But the one in, 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 in practice, when I would see patients and they would take the Lord's name in vain, I would stop there. I said, I don't care what swear word you say. I really don't. But when you take the Lord's name in vain, and that's comparing the Lord to what you would do if you went to the toilet, I said, that's very offensive. And it, I never, ever got rebuttal from that. I got usually they would look down and they would say, I'm sorry. But again, a seed planted. It's not legalist. It's just it offends our heart because we know what he did for us. Amen. Amen. Any, anybody else? Okay, go ahead. I had one more. Um, what's the first law that we see in the Bible? I'm going to put you in paradise. I'm going to give you everything you need. All you, I'm going to give you all the food you can. You just can't eat that one tree. Right. So it just shows we cannot follow, even if the law was the simplest law that it is, yeah. we cannot do it. And the only way we can live a righteous life is when you accept Christ and have the Holy Spirit come into you because then it convicts you. And you got to question a person that lives a life where they're not being convicted by it. You got to question their salvation Amen. because, and I'm not saying as a legalist, but if you see them doing something, you have to say, it's got to be hurting them inside. If they got the Holy spirit in them, it's grieving the Holy spirit. So mm. that's, I think where, where it is. That's good. Hold the mic. I'm going to have you, or you can't, yeah, Ken, I'll have you close in prayer before you do. Ken, um, I, I love what you just shared because and I use this when I'm sharing my faith with people. I'll say, imagine if, if you could do whatever you wanted, but you just can't touch my cell phone. You know, I put, or usually I use a pen. I'll say, you can do whatever you want, but you cannot touch this pen. What do you want to do? That, that's the human nature. It's human nature. That's why, that's why Paul is so passionate, not just about the gospel for our justification, but the gospel for our sanctification. I think that's one of the lost teachings of the church today. I think we, we come to Christ by grace, but then we grow through works. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a tragedy because people are just, they, you can, there's nothing attractive about a legalist. Mm -hmm. If you watch their life, it's not attractive. But when somebody's growing in the gospel, they become good news. Mm -hmm. People see them as good news and they're attracted, attracted to that. Would you close? I sure will. Bow our heads. Lord, the Holy Spirit is rich this morning. We just thank you so much for Greg's message about the cross, Lord. I thank you for these men. We have a common goal to, to get closer to you, Lord. May we be brighter lights this week to those around us. May we always take this message and realize that love trumps all and that we do not rely on the legalism or we don't forget our brains when we come to the emotion, Lord, that we use your word to be lights in this lost world so they can, that the lost can have the same joy that we have in knowing you. And we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.